What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead, it's V-Day. Pfizer's COVID vaccinations begin, albeit in the UK, as our own FDA meets Thursday to give its expected approval. Are the vaccine stocks a sell on this news? We will ask. Plus, Goldman raises its GDP outlook. JP Morgan says any market correction is a buying opportunity. Is it? Are people too optimistic? We'll debate. And Uber's autonomous losses, Tesla's huge new stock offering, and Apple is turning heads today. It's all coming up. But first, let's hit the markets. And Rahel Solomon has those numbers for us today. Hi, Rahel. <laughs> Hi, Kelly. So markets have slowly moved higher throughout the day, just enough to put the Nasdaq and S&P at record highs with the Dow. Now less than 1% from yesterday's record intraday high. So the level to watch there is 30,200. That was a weird looking three. 30,233. So watch that level. Uh, among the stocks to watch today, Kelly, Stitch Fix trading at a fresh all-time high up more than 40%. So this comes after a surprise profit and expectations for double-digit growth in the next year. Shares are up about 370% from those March lows. You can see year-to-date is up almost 100%. And finally, take a look at the home builders among the worst performers in the S&P today as they follow Toll Brothers lower. And that's despite a beat on just about every metric. The luxury builder CEO saying it's the strongest housing market he's seen in 30 years at the company and that they continue to raise prices in nearly all of their communities. Kelly. Strongest market in 30 years. And the stock's like, yeah, it's priced in. Well, no <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> we appreciate it. Rel Solomon back at HQ. Let's get to now the vaccine news today. A 90-year-old woman in the U.K. becoming the first person in the world to receive Pfizer's vaccine. This as our FDA releases its vaccine review data today. Meg Terrell is here now with the key takeaways from this report. Meg? Hey, Kelly. So these briefing documents contain our first look at how the FDA is looking at Pfizer and BioNTech's data. Uh, they did their own analysis on all of the data from all of the trials so far and released it this morning ahead of that meeting on Thursday of their outside advisors. Now, importantly, on the safety, they say the trial data suggests a favorable safety profile with no specific safety concerns identified that would preclude issuance of an emergency use authorization. But we are getting more information about uh, things, some side effects that happened in the trial uh, that they are tracking, specifically things like fatigue, uh, injection site reactions, headache, muscle pain, chills, joint pain, and fever. Uh, they are warning, you know, after the second shot, people could really feel this. They've compared it sort of to the shingles vaccine in terms of feeling those side effects from getting the shot. Um, they also noticed four cases of Bell's palsy in the vaccine group, and there were zero on placebo. Now, some talk of this being the usual rate you see of that uh, in the population, but the fact that there were four on vaccine, zero on placebo means the FDA suggests that there be surveillance for this. And Bell's palsy is essentially temporary weakness um, or paralysis. And so they're paying attention to that. But overall, favorable safety profile. Kelly, a really important on efficacy as well. We know that this vaccine is 95% effective in preventing cases of COVID-19 after two shots. But check out this graph. This shows protection after one dose. Starting at day 14, you start to see a real split. The orange line there is the rate of COVID-19 uh, infection 
uh, after uh, two weeks, uh, and the blue line uh, is people on vaccine, the orange line being placebo. So you can see that after two weeks, after their first shot, people are getting protection from COVID-19. Um, the FDA is saying that there aren't enough data to recommend approval of just one shot for this vaccine, uh, but certainly uh, it is heartening to know that you know after one shot, you do get some protection. Kelly? That's a great point. So, Meg, there's also a lot of concern about how much supply we'll have for the general population next year. Um, the president is, ha is holding this vaccine summit at 2 p.m., I believe, with uh, executives. Now, I don't think Pfizer and BioNTech are going to be there. Correct me if I'm wrong, a Moderna, maybe, maybe not. Um, but the, the point is, is he going to sign this executive order that would allow us to kind of reclaim some of that supply that has now been given up to other countries? So it's not exactly clear what this executive order would actually do. You know, ostensibly, it, it's, it sounds like it's designed to ensure that Americans get vaccinated first. But experts say they don't really know what teeth this executive order really has in order to accomplish that. Dr. Gottlieb was on Squawk Box this morning pointing out, you know, even though there is a supply chain in the United States and a supply chain uh, in Europe, or at least manufacturing sites in these different places to supply different parts of the world for Pfizer, Raw materials could come from other places, too. And so it's a delicate dance trying to say that something made in the U.S. has to be given first to the U.S., uh, considering that the supply chain really is global. Um, so not clear that that will really affect anything in terms of supply. Well, we'll see what comes out, uh, I suppose, in about an hour's time on, on that front. Uh, and certainly if we get, you know, news from Moderna next week and others kind of following suit, hopefully that will ease the, the bottleneck. Meg, thanks for now. We always appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the latest for us. Thanks. Let's look at the stock now. Pfizer up about 3% and its vaccine partner BioNTech up today as well. Pfizer, in fact, hitting a 52-week high. But is this a sell-the-news kind of event for the vaccine names that have had big runs this year? Joining me now is Ronnie Gall. He's a senior analyst at Bernstein. Ronnie, it's great to have you back. Are you recommending that people take some profits here? So what I'm what I'm basically saying is that what it looks like more than anything else is that we'll have an earlier wave of vaccination in the United States. Most people think it will be around mid-year. It now looks that we might have a significant amount of vaccination already in the first quarter. And once you pass roughly 50% uh, vaccination of the public, we should see the epidemic plummet. So the argument is uh, that the stock that should perform on this news are, are the stock that are part of the reopening trade. So like the hotels, the airlines, and my, my colleague just upgraded love uh, this morning. Um, and less so of the drug companies, which are probably more of a source of funds uh, for this trade. Uh, the stocks are also seeing uh, a little bit of pressure from the nominees that uh, the Biden administration is putting out. Uh, Becerra for HHS is not known as a as a, a friends of the drug industry necessarily. So, so the concern here is that the drug industry, while bringing the vaccine to the marketplace, are actually not the way to play uh, to play the opening uh, trade. Right. No, that's interesting. I'm going to reiterate it to make sure everyone's following what you're saying, that we think a lot of investors are going to sell the vaccine names as a source of funds to buy the other reopening names. And you think once we hit about 50 percent uh, of the population, there's going to there's not going to be as much take up. Um, how profitable are these vaccines going to be for Pfizer and the rest of them? And I guess maybe the more direct question to ask is, um, are there any of the vaccine names that you have an outperform on right now? So I, I only I'm, I have one of them, I guess, uh, Merck is, a, is an outperform, but not because of the vaccine position. I'm actually not arguing that you want to necessarily sell uh, Pfizer and Moderna here on, on this uh, set of news. As a matter of fact, if other companies falter and they end up, end up being in the, market, the only vaccine markets in the marketplace, 
And they could end up doing very, very well here as a result of that. But we don't know that, and we also don't know how long the vaccines last. Historically, vaccines have not been a great uh, product. I'm reasonably sure the current pricing, they're probably making typical 80% plus uh, margin uh, on the on-market sales. But typically, you think about vaccine as being more of a 50% gross margin product, which is relatively low for drug companies. And because those are mostly national purchases, if there will be several vaccine makers that make it to the market over the next year, by the time we get to the boosting doses in 22, 23, 3, 24, we would ostensibly suspect the pricing of those vaccines will plummet um, to about $10 per, uh, per booster shot in the developed market, wow. which is roughly what you see other vaccines uh, selling at, simply because there'll be so much, uh, so much offering here. So, yeah, I do think that BioNTech, Pfizer, uh, Moderna will do great in terms of vaccine sales and revenue near term. We, I think we have uh, close to $10 billion for Pfizer in 2021 for this. It just it looks like a one-time spike. Uh, with revenue coming down uh, sure. later. So what about a company like Moderna, for whom this approach was entirely new? They have what appears to be a smashing success with it. Uh, does that make them much more attractive as a long-term investment, um, or is it that a lot of that's already priced in? So to be clear, I, I don't cover momentum. It does, it, just think about the valuation of the company, it does look like they've benefited quite a bit from this. The future of Moderna is, uh, and BioNTech for that purpose is probably not in COVID-19 vaccine to justify another significant move up. They have to take the technology developed here and apply it elsewhere uh, in other vaccination and also in things like cancer vaccine. Uh, BioNTech, for example, has got, already got a, a clinical program together with Regeneron doing just that. So the real question is, can they take all those learning, all the manufacturing capacity, all the cash they do and find a way to expand uh, their footprint into additional diseases to become kind of like a mature pharma company. So, so the verdict is obviously still out at this stage. Fair enough. Ronnie, thanks for joining us again with the uh, market perform sure. on Pfizer and some of the other major names. Ronnie Gal of Bernstein. Meanwhile, stocks overall are racing some early losses today. The Dow's now on track for its fifth gain in six days. The S&P and NASDAQ hitting more record highs. And two Wall Street giants out with some bullish calls. Goldman hiking its GDP estimate to 5% growth this quarter, while J.P. Morgan says any correction is a buying opportunity since we're only in the middle of the bull market. Too much optimism? Here to react now are Michael Cagino. He's president and portfolio manager of the permanent portfolio family of funds. And Jamie Cox is a partner at Harris Financial Group. Welcome to both of you. Jamie, I'm just going to start with you. Um, remind me, I mean, are you bullish on this market? You know, cautious for the near term as some, uh, some now are? What are your thoughts? Well, I think there's going to be a two-tiered, you know, speed to this recovery for stocks. I think, you know, you've seen over this past, you know, past year 2020, you've seen high-flying tech stocks. You've seen stocks that have completely run away with it. That's not going to be the story for 2021. So I am not necessarily bullish large-cap tech and some of the things that have already run, but I'm definitely more bullish dividend growth, some of the things that are going to pick up the pace as the recovery starts to take hold. We're in a vaccine-dependent, you know, recovery. And as the vaccine begins to get distributed here in the United States and around the world, we're going to start to be able to figure out just how fast some of these beaten down sectors are going to recover. Airlines, banks, all these things that can't be replaced by technology. Maybe banks can, but airlines are difficult too. These are sectors that have been just absolutely hammered. And I can't wait for these, you know, these particular companies to recover. And I expect 2021 to be that year. So for those particular companies, very all bullish. Right but not necessarily for the Amazons of the world, which I think will be funding sources for some of this rotation. 
Michael, let me ask you, and, and Barry Bannister of Stiefel was out with more of a cautious take on the market today. He has about a $3,800 uh, price target on the S&P. Um, you know, is everybody who is saying, you know, because of these preconditions, stocks will continue to perform well, ignoring the fact that uh, a lot of these gains might have been pulled forward in much the way that a lot of the acceleration of this economy has just been pulled forward into 2020? A very legitimate point, Kelly. I'm in the camp that in the short term, um, and probably into the first half of next year at least, you are going to have good stock performance. You've got great comps going into next year. You have the vaccine you know, coming online, the, the pre, the post-COVID pent-up demand, all those factors that would be the sort of sugar high for economic growth getting back to normal. That's going to be the story for at least for the first half of next year. Then it gets a little bit murky. And, uh, and there's just a lot of risk factors. I mean, investors right now are hit with so many. I don't remember a time where investors have had so many simultaneous risks to their portfolios and their long-term investment strategies and what they're seeing now, whether it's health, employment, trade, politics, um, economic activity, uh, changing dynamics of and how people are going to And yet the market's loving it. I mean, Michael, that's what's so fascinating about this is, is you're absolutely right. You, I mean, you throw everything at this market and the Nasdaq's up 40% this year. Well, to some degree, there's nowhere else to go because the Fed's on the sideline. Capital is cheap. Real interest rates are negative. Um, and you do have a bifurcation going on where people are definitely trading the, the current environment, the COVID stocks, the shut-in type scenarios, the, the you know tech. Um, Jamie mentioned tech and some other industries. Those have all been winners. And then the cyclical side of things has really not kept up until recently. Now, you would expect that as the economy recovers, those things are going to start to advance, and they certainly have. And that's a trade that, you know, the commodity cycle is in a multi-year trough at this point. That's likely going to increase with pent-up demand and resuming global growth and easy monetary policy. So you have a potential multi-year trade in commodities on the upside there. Um, but that may take a while to develop. You also have, you know, the, the issue of employment, the sustainability and the, the breadth of economic recovery. Right now, it's been very bifurcated. Yeah. Going forward, you're hoping that that broadens out. And, and how will that impact economic activity? So there are a lot of risks. And then the politics, policy, fiscal policy is going to play a huge role going into the latter part of next year and beyond, uh, depending on what policies we produce and the economic benefits or yeah. costs to, to implementing some of that stuff. Yeah, still, it seems that, again, the, the bigger the worry list is, the higher we can climb it. Jamie, my final question to you is to kind of uh, reiterate what we've talked about this week already, a uh, point that Jim Paulson made on Friday, which is there is a huge amount of stimulus uh, in this market. We have, you know, 25 percent growth in the M2 money supply. We have 16, 17 percent uh, deficit to GDP spending, you know, multiple times over what we had uh, during the recovery last time around. Isn't all of that more than enough, not only to overcome the worries that Michael's outlining, uh, but to keep liquidity, to keep stocks rising for a very considerable period of time? There, there is a literal sea of money that's sitting on the sidelines right now. In a typical election year, for example, you typically see $200 billion flow into you know, money market mutual funds versus $40 billion going into equity mutual funds. In 2020, through the end of October, the number was $750 billion in the money market mutual funds versus a negative or a, an outflow of $283 billion. And so you're, you're talking about a 6x differential in you know, money that has to go somewhere. It's probably not going to stay in money markets for long. So there's a really, really strong undercurrent that will, I think, flow into the markets in 2021. 
And it's all going to be dependent on, you know, how things go with the vaccine. If we have a very smooth ride, which mm-hmm. is something that people need to be very cautious about because it could it could be bumpy. I think that there is plenty of underpinning that if we get some sell-offs, that they'll be temporary and they won't be violent like they were in March of last year with the shutdowns. So they would be buying opportunities, as J.P. Right. Morgan suggests. Kelly, one other point real Fair quick enough. on that. There's money chasing a lot of things around. Uh, I'll introduce the word inflation. And, uh, you know, when yep. the slack of labor and, and materials and capital gets reduced, uh, you're going to potentially have inflationary pressures we have not seen in a while. And we'll give you more than a word on that as soon as the 10-year crosses 1%, Michael, because I totally take your point. Uh, but it but is, just, you know, it's just being shrugged off right now. Uh, but we'll see. That definitely feels like it'll be a big part of the Most 2021 debate. Uh, Michael Cugino and Jamie Cox, thank you both today. Credit Suisse, meanwhile, releasing its top picks for 2021. They're focusing on the reopening trade, and they pick names in the consumer discretionary and staples sectors. Those names include the likes of Ulta, Coca-Cola, and Booking Holdings. For the full list and how Credit Suisse came up with it, head over to cnbc.com pro. Still coming up, Main Street hits a dead end. The economic impact of not extending the Fed's Main Street lending program is already being felt. We'll tell you where. Plus, Wall Street is loving PayPal and Square's Bitcoin offerings. But our users... One analyst went out searching for some answers, and his surprising, we have his surprising findings and what it means for the stocks ahead. Stay with us. We're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. The Treasury's decision not to extend the Main Street lending program is having an immediate impact on the economy. Steve Leisman has those details for us. Steve? Kelly, thank you. The decision by the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin not to extend funding for the Federal Reserve's Main Street lending facility after December 31st looks to be cutting into lending right now, even though it's open for several more weeks. That's according to bankers involved with the program. We've learned that after Mnuchin made his decision on November 19th, some borrowers were told there was no longer time to close their loans. One such borrower who asked not to be named told us it's a huge impact on our ability to remain liquid and finance our businesses. A banker who has already approved 42 Main Street loans worth $463 million told me he could only process perhaps 30 of 100 loans in this pipeline before the deadline. John Steinmetz, chief executive officer of Vista Bank in Dallas, says interest has been off the charts. We were not able to handle it. The decision by the secretary came less than three weeks after the Fed and the Treasury opened it up to more businesses, including lowering the minimum size of the loan to $100,000. Now, a senior Treasury official telling CNBC, quote, there are many banks, including the big banks, that are continuing to lend, and they expect that their loans will be completely funded by the time the program ends on December 31st. So with just over $6 billion in loans, Main Street never lived up to its promise of loaning out $600 billion. But the two best weeks of the programs were the ones before the secretary announced it would shutter. Bankers said, Kelly, that approval processes had been speeding up. 
Steve, stick around. I, I have some more questions, but let's bring Peter Bookvar into this discussion. Talk about what it means uh, for the fate of businesses who need aid right now and for the economy. Uh, he is chief investment officer at the Bleakley Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, so uh, li listen, this was not, I mean, we've had some real success stories in COVID. PPP has been one of them. Main Street Lending Program has absolutely <clears throat> not been. Um, what what should be done with the funds now? I mean, do we need these funds repurposed into the economy in a, in a different and better way? Well, there were, there were a few different issues. You take it from the borrower side, and yes, those that obviously need the money, there's definitely demand there. But it was more nuanced. There were unclear uh, EBITDA uh, coverage numbers that you had to meet that wasn't necessarily clear. A lot of borrowers had to take um, personal guarantees that they didn't want to take on. Uh, a lot of existing debt that businesses had wouldn't allow uh, another form of debt to come in, even parry pursue, and certainly not above in the in, in their uh, in their terms of their uh, relationship between the two. From a bank perspective, if the loan is so great, why would I want to give 95% to the government? Uh, and even if 5% goes bad, it's still 5% that goes bad. So maybe I'm less inclined to be giving out that loan because my lender, lending standards right. have tightened anyway. So while on paper it may sound good, I think a bank would make this loan anyway, irrespective of the Fed's presence. So, Steve, here's a question. I mean, if they wanted to revive this program at this point, could they? Um, if it's if not, then I mean, are, is this where the whole point of what's going on on Washington right now is to figure out a way to say, OK, well, then let's repurpose that as PPP or jobless you know, benefits or some other uh, more direct form of assistance? Yeah. <clears throat> First, I need to say that Peter Bookvar's talents are wasted in analysis because he sounds exactly like the community bankers that I spent the last three days speaking with. He was right <laughs> on the mark about the Parapassu issues. Why is the bank Parapassu with the losses of the federal government? Uh, are the EBITDA uh, considerations too strict? Um, this is a program that did not do well because it was not designed to do well, in a sense. Uh, the, the government took very little risk with its own money. Congress gave the Treasury money, and the Treasury decided, it seemed early on, not to lose any of it, with the idea being that Mnuchin would say, Congress didn't want me to lose that money. Well, okay. And then what happened is you made a series of loans that were essentially the way a bank would make those loans. I can give you an example. Um, it takes 30 days to approve a commercial loan. That's about what time it took plus the Fed approval time to approve one of these loans. I, I'll ask you a question, Kelly, and I'm sure Peter has the same answer, which is if I'm giving you a $5 million piece of a $100 million loan, are you going to spend any less time looking over that loan because you could lose $5 million and not $95 million? And I think the answer is no. Yeah, it'd have to be pretty big for that not to make a, a difference. So, Peter, let me give you the last word here then. Uh, for those people who are saying, all right, then let's take a step back, maybe have a fresh slate come January, or if, if this is under debate in Congress at this very moment and we need something done by next week, what is the answer? Well, for these businesses, the answer is really more equity, not more debt, for those that already have a lot of debt. Now, I know you can maybe restructure the PPP, to uh, sort of uh, widen and, and, and liberalize the, the, the requirements to be able to get it, uh, but also inviting us, and there's, there's trillions of dollars of private equity money out there. Let's, let's, use, let's try to convince them uh, to make some equity investments in, in these businesses that need capital, both small and medium-sized.
Yeah, it's just too bad that, you know, medium-sized businesses are a really important part of this economy for them to fall through the cracks like this. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a shame. Uh, Peter and Steve, thanks. And Steve, thanks for your reporting in particular on this. Peter Bookvar and Steve Leisman thanks. on the Fed's Main Street Lending Program. Coming up, Uber unloads its autonomous driving unit for half of what it was worth a year ago. We'll look at why. Plus, Tesla looking to sell another $5 billion of its red-hot stock. Smart strategic move or a warning sign for investors? Shares are down fractionally today. Don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a few. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets have shaken off their earlier losses. Dow is up 146 at the highs. We're up 120 right now, so we're pretty much sitting there. We were down almost 100 at one point. Four tenths percent gain for the Dow. It's leading the major averages. And in terms of the sectors, energy is back in the leadership today. So opposite of yesterday, today has more of a reopening tilt. You also have consumer staples, materials going positive. Discretionary and communication services, though, are lagging right now, uh, at least relative to the other sectors of the market. Some of the individual movers are U.S. Steel, which is sharply higher after news that it's buying the remaining stake in Big River Steel that it doesn't already own. The deal will give U.S. Steel access to advanced steel production technology. It's an 11% rally for X. Shares of Thor lower despite beating on the top and bottom line. Analysts are cautious on profit margin pressure because of higher labor costs and supply chain issues. We've heard this a lot lately. Thor down 2.5%. And shares of AutoZone are down after better than expected earnings and comps. Their revenue was in line, but gross profit margins were lower as more customers use the company's loyalty program. Now, there's a reason we haven't heard as much about lately. AutoZone down about 6%. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Army is firing or suspending 14 officers and soldiers at Fort Hood in Texas and has ordered sweeping policy changes to combat violence and sexual harassment on the base. A pair of two star generals are among those being reprimanded. Ohio's Governor Mike DeWine says lethal injections are no longer an option for executions in that state. He cites difficulties finding the drugs needed. He has asked Ohio legislators to choose a new method for capital punishment. Cybersecurity researchers say millions of smart devices are vulnerable to hacking because of software flaws. Products from an estimated 150 manufacturers are affected. The most vulnerable, remote cameras and temperature sensors. And in Rome, the Pope marking the start of the Christmas season with a traditional visit to a city landmark. Normally thousands attend that event. This year, though, it was done in secrecy because of the pandemic. You are up to date, Kel. I'll see you again in an hour. Back to you. What was the landmarks? You have only been to Rome once. It is, it is a statue of the Madonna, uh, the Virgin Mary, and it's the um, Immaculate Conception. Today is the, the uh, holy day of the Immaculate Conception. So the Pope normally does it, and it's a big, it's at the bottom of the Roman steps, Spanish steps, rather, and they normally have thousands of people, but they, they can't do it this time. So... It's beautiful. And that, that is a good reminder. Thank you for telling me that. <laughs> I, I know because my girls go to today. Catholic school and they're off today. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
exactly. Uh, holy day uh, of obligation. All right. There you go. Still ahead. If you build it, will they come? <laughs> Wall Street loves Square and PayPal's moves into Bitcoin. But what about consumers? We do have some answers about what that means for the stocks, which have been just such tremendous performers. Plus, Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine requires super cold storage. And as hospitals, shippers and pharmacies get ready for it, they're going after one hot commodity, dry ice. It's all coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Michael Santoli, Dear Drabosa, and Bob Bassani. Welcome, everybody. First up, Uber is selling its self-driving unit for a lot less than it was worth a year ago. The deal to sell the group to Aurora Innovation values a self-driving unit at just $4 billion, or a little more than half of its 2019 valuation. As part of the deal, Uber also will invest $400 million into Aurora for about a quarter of the company, bringing Aurora's value to $10 billion, Deirdre. Uh, but why, I mean, listen, do they, we know Uber's been looking, it seems, to sell, uh, you know, sell off some things that it can. It's clearly not interested in waiting around to command a higher valuation for this unit. What does that tell you? Well, it's been commanding a higher valuation by selling off these units. Dara Khosrow Shahi is an operator, right? He's not a founder like Travis Kalanick, who said that self-driving technology was existential for the company's future, the way that it got to profitability. Um, I was laughing because the other day I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal called Uber, an online taxi company, which is really what it has become. It has sold off other parts of the business that made it the disruptor that it was over the last decade or so. Earlier this year, Kelly, if you remember, they sold off their e-bike and scooter business. That happened early on in the pandemic right. when they were trying to shed more of these money-losing businesses. And that's actually turned out to be quite a good business. People are going back to it. It's rebounding and it's commanding higher valuation. So did it happen in haste? I'm not sure, but it's certainly working for Wall Street. Yeah. Bob, what are your you thoughts? Know, uh, Kelly, the, well, in one sense, I get it. Look, it eliminates a major cost center. And, and you're right. Uh, I think uh, he clearly wants to move the company on the path to profitability. So all of that makes absolute sense. But come on, aren't you a little disappointed about this? It's kind of like the where's my jetpack crowd. Remember when Travis used to talk about the car's going to pull up and there's not going to be anybody in it. And it's going to take you all over the place. Yes. And we'll just have yes. this giant transport system around the world. It turns out the Jetsons are a lot farther away than we all anticipated. That's a little bit disappointing. No, and but this I, is you know, I do get it. And I'm holding out for the jetpack, by the way. That's what I think. Is it's happen. disappointing, but important. And Mike, this is going to take us right into the discussion yeah. on Tesla, because a third of the bull case for Tesla, at least, is predicated on their full self-driving kits, on this technology that they're going to sell as a, you know, subscribe as a service. Well, tell me I'm supposed to be bullish on Tesla's full self-driving as the same time that Uber just unloaded its self-driving unit for half of what it was worth last year. Well, just to remind you, there's only three weeks left in this year, and this was when there were supposed to be a million uh, self-driving Tesla taxis on the road. Uh, so I do think that you exactly. can kind of keep this stuff kind of right out in front of people, keep them moving in the right direction. And yeah, who's to say it's not going to happen eventually? When it comes to Uber, though, uh, I do think it is interesting because it wasn't just Travis Kalanick saying that this is integral to our future business. 
business model. I think there was a general sense among investors that, in fact, the, the numbers really only worked if, if the, the company moved in that direction. That might not be the case anymore. Maybe just being a dispatch app uh, and, a, and a food delivery company is, is enough. But, yeah, when it comes to Tesla, they're selling enough cars. The volumes are going in the right direction. So I still think there's a secondary story besides just eventually they're going to be all autonomous. Plus, there's a story that, hey, by the way, they're all equipped with the software. All we're just going to have to do is flip the switch when the day comes. Right. Exactly. And so, again, to catch up with the Tesla news today, they're offering $5 billion of stock to take advantage of this high share price, the second stock offering in three months, the third this year, Bob. Um, but again, the, yeah. Tesla is selling cars. But I'm going back to the Goldman upgrade last week in which their bull case, so the highest price target on the street for Tesla, $780. That's predicated on some 2040 targets for the car business. Okay, fine. It's also predicated on basically every new roof in this country being a Tesla solar panel roof and on Tesla selling tons of these full self-driving kids. I, tell me that doesn't look, that at least one part of that story doesn't look a little dubious. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but this is one of those companies where there's an absolute cult-like belief in it. I'll tell you another one that's developing is Peloton, too. Uh, excuse me, uh, a Palantir, too. Uh, there's a company that's going to make 12 cents next year. It's trading for 240 times forward numbers. The street believes somehow these guys are real geniuses. They have AI. They believe in Elon Musk. So it's sort of almost partially uh, a religion. You can say that this is signs of frothiness when you do three capital raises in a year, but not when you're at $500 a few weeks ago and now you're at $633. And by the way, this is causing some issues for S&P. I mean, they're, they're going into the S&P at the close yep. on, the 20, on the 18th. We're talking about $85 billion they've got to buy of this, somewhere around there right now. I haven't done the numbers this morning, but I mean, that means somebody's got to sell $85 billion and, and all the other stuff in the S&P 500. That's, that's going to be the biggest rebalancing in the history of the S&P. That will be an interesting afternoon. Yeah. And I wonder if this is the moment that kind of index investing jumps the shark. But that's, that's a discussion for another time. Let's talk about kind of a more boring old business, which when it started was the exciting new thing. Anyway, it's FedEx, which is hitting a new record high after a bold call from UBS. The firm is maintaining its buy rating and raising its price target to a street high of $380 a share. That's another 26% upside. The shares have been on an absolute tear this year. They've doubled since January. They've more than tripled off of the lows in March. And Deirdre, the, the thing, though, is we, you know, we know the narrative. It's just a matter of price targets now try, you know, trying to figure out where to stick a price target on this story. Yeah, and you have to wonder, Kelly, if some of the other Wall Street analysts have to reconsider their targets because you just laid out um, the enormous rise that we have seen from FedEx this year. So certainly its target price is catching up with those gains. Um, I read that note. Part of it has to do, it's so interesting, right? What's old is new again. And part of, you know, we, you would think that FedEx and UPS would have a really tough year given, you know, business parcels are down, but the consumer parcels making up for it. And with air travel, Kelly, um, so constrained, right? You have less supply for some of those shipments, but the demand has been there with the rise of e-commerce and this digital transformation that we're seeing. So FedEx has certainly been, and UPS have been a benefactory, beneficiary yeah. of that. 
It's a good point. Mike, last word on this? I was going to say it's gone from being this kind of discarded two-year bear market in global trade uh, and in the shipping business. And now it's an earnings momentum story. Uh, the fiscal year, current fiscal year earnings uh, estimates for FedEx have gone from $9 on June 30th to 16 and change or 17 and change right now. Uh, so wow. essentially, it's up 70 percent. And it's all about how people underestimated what a, uh, a return to you know, high capacity usage in the shipping business has become. Yeah, Do and they remember, have to worry Kelly, about the a 2021 hangover, in- or is this the, the, cha- the transformation of the economy, Bob? Well, the, the, the big, remember something, just apropos what Mike said, the biggest moves FedEx has had in the last six months is on their earnings days. In May and in September, they had big <laughs> moves up when the earnings were announced. So people have been underestimating the numbers, which is why I can understand why they got an upgrade uh, today. So they, they're, they've point. been great on great the earnings. Point. Yeah. And all right. Finally, Apple just made some big announcements today. One is that its new fitness subscription service will launch on December 14th. It'll cost 10 bucks a month or $80 a year. Rival Peloton's app subscription starts at $13 a month. So it's a little bit below that level. Peloton shares did sell off on this news initially, but they've now reversed course and are higher. Again, one of the monster stocks this year, up one and a half percent right now. Apple also unveiled the AirPods Max for $549. Mike, which of these two <laughs> announcements is more significant? Um, I think longer term, the fitness announcement is likely more significant just in the sense that the way Apple tends to do things is we're going to enter a business. We're not claiming we're going to take it over right away. And down the road, if there's going to be an all-inclusive Apple subscription uh, that basically is Apple as a service, which I mean, it's kind of there already. But if it really gets filled out with a full slate of Apple TV Plus, maybe this fitness thing, then I think it becomes uh, a bigger story longer term. And, and when it comes to the, you know, the AirPods Max, look, they, they, they put Max right in the name. Right. So they're not telling you they're going to be cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't come up with this the name a, of them here, Joe. I said, do we have a photo of the, of the AirPod, you know, the Beats things? The head, I'm just doing this. And I'm like, I, it, I'm getting confused with the names of the phones. I mean, what do you think? Well, hold on. Do we, do we have a picture of the case? That's what really caught my attention um, for. Yeah, there, Ooh, it is. there it is. I don't know what they're doing with that. Um, I got to disagree with Mike. I think that the... AirPods Max are the more significant announcement because when Apple does software alone, I'm a little bit meh on it. I mean, I still use Spotify, even though I have products in the Apple ecosystem. When they combine their software and hardware, they have that vertical integration that is deadly competitive. And I already, you know, rely on my AirPods. I was telling John Fort this morning that they are the best piece of technology I bought since the iPhone. So I think that the AirPods Max are an extension of this. It has a lot of possibilities in gaming with developers. I think that's that's the one to watch. In my opinion, I still I'm skeptical that they can get the the kind of instructors and stuff that Peloton has. (laughs) This, this is a classic problem word. of lo- it's low barrier to entry. That's what this story is. So you buy the bike, but you stay for the video. Well, that's a problem when you've got a company that can provide an infinite amount of videos and they got a better platform with the Apple Music platform. So what are they charging? Peloton's like $12.99 a month right now. I think Apple, if you max it out for the year, it's like half of that that they're going to offer right here. That's very serious competition. It's more than just but about Bob, the bike. Since and I know Apple's you're a got big, that other component. We know you. We know you're a big music fan, Bob. Would you are, do you see a product like the AirPods Max and think I need to have this as this top of the line technology or do you think it's way overpriced? 
Oh, it's, well, it's way overpriced, but people like, like us that love that kind of thing, Apple fanatics like me, will buy almost any new Apple product just to check it out against the other Apple right. product. I think it's, it's fine, but I'm talking about the competition with Peloton overall. That's what I find. I know. I think Peloton's yeah. got a problem. I take your point. And these are totally a new status symbol. These stainless steel headphones, whatever they're called. Uh, Bob Bassani, Deirdre Bosa, Michael Santoli, thank you all for joining thank us today for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, the street is bullish on PayPal and Square, adding Bitcoin options to their platforms. But how do users feel about it? We're going to dig into that and in the usage data right after this break. Welcome back. A huge comeback for Bitcoin this year, up 160%, nearly crossing $20,000 for the first time. Part of the boom came after it was added on PayPal and Square, and those stocks have seen massive gains both this year and as a result. Square's up more than 230% since January. PayPal has more than doubled. Wall Street may love the crypto additions, but are they being adopted by users? Joining us now is James Friedman. He's a senior fintech research analyst at Susquehanna. James, it's great to have you. Again, anecdotally, I hear a lot and have looked myself at how it works on the Cash App, you know, buying Bitcoin. Um, what have you discovered in terms of the take-up rate here? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. It was very interesting. Um, we hosted a survey uh, looking at consumer adoption this time of crypto in general on the Square and PayPal platforms. I can run through the summary with you, but in general, you can see there's a lot of pent up and active demand for crypto for both these companies. So your takeaway would be that the stocks have run up tremendously, both because of uh, the pandemic, but also because of their uh, exposure to Bitcoin. And you think that they still could have quite a tailwind from that? You know, our, so look, we think that there's upside to both stocks. Is it crypto related? Perhaps um, the companies do well, Square historically has the mind share and the customer base in crypto. They adopted it three or four years ago, and they have a lot of revenue from it, though at a thin margin. Now, PayPal really just announced their crypto initiatives uh, in the last four to six weeks. Um, there are differences in the initiatives of the two companies, um, but right now Square has the more economics from crypto than PayPal. PayPal is more on the come, uh, but there are differences like I described. What would you say is the most important finding for investors? Well, I would say the surprising. All right, let me just run through some of the things you might find more intuitive. So about 13% of those that we surveyed indicated that they have used the Square Cash app to purchase Bitcoin. Um, the interesting thing is, though, that 22% of those surveyed indicate that they have now seen or heard of the PayPal initiative in crypto. 39% of those surveyed say they think more favorably of PayPal now that it's offering crypto functionality. And this is in terms of the differences in the strategies. 53% of those that we surveyed indicate that they would like to use crypto if they own crypto right. checkout. So what's that about? You know, you can fund your PayPal account with your credit card, with your debit card, or with your checking account. This would be an additional yeah. funding store, so you could actually buy and sell stuff, uh, goods and services at checkout with your crypto assets, if that makes sense. 
It does. And I think you're, you're, what you're saying is that not only has uh, access to crypto been an important part of what users are already looking for, but the numbers are small enough that it could grow significantly from here. Uh, as high as Bitcoin is now, you can think about maybe a, a whole new uh, field of people getting involved and maybe doing it this way. James, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. James Friedman has a buy on both PayPal and Square. Still ahead, dry ice is now in very high demand as the COVID vaccine needs to be transported and stored at subarctic temperatures. We've got the story for you next. Welcome back. One of the challenges of rolling out a COVID-19 vaccine is keeping it at subarctic temperatures. For that, hospitals and shippers will need dry ice and a lot of it. Seema Modi is in Bridgewater, New Jersey with more. Seema? Kelly, these large-scale containers can store about 2,000 pounds of dry ice. It sells for about a dollar per pound, and they come in different sizes. This is a large block that you would see inside a FedEx truck. But the ones that are in demand for hospitals are in the form of a pellet that you can find inside of a Pfizer vaccine container that holds uh, that vaccine at that subarctic temperature. Now, Chris Vita, the owner of this ice uh, facility, a dry ice facility, says the average size of orders being placed by hospitals ranges around 170 pounds. Remember, when it comes to dry ice, you cannot stockpile it because over time it turns back into a gas. And that's why he says hospitals are trying to set up contracts with his facility to ensure they can come back for refills. Now all the questions are starting and, and, you know, there's a lot of confusion out there. People really don't know how it's going to be stored, how we're going to ship, how much do we need. So, you know, it's, it's been very good. It's, it's actually doubled our volume of business. Now we've been speaking to a number of different distributors across the nation up in Boston. Acme Dry Ice says their team plans to work through the holidays to fulfill every order that is coming in. We're definitely working through the holidays because I don't think, listen, the, vac the vaccine has to be, has to keep on the move. So there is no sleep for the, for the vaccine or the, or the COVID virus. All right. Now, the trade body that represents some of the biggest uh, dry ice manufacturers and the CO2 suppliers say they have enough to meet the demand for this vaccine. Uh, but important to know, these are some of the large-scale industrial players that are involved in this dry ice. Kelly Lind, the German company that acquired Praxair a couple years ago, says again that they have enough to meet the demand. Back to you. Seema, thank you very much. And such an important plank of this whole distribution story. We appreciate it. Seema Modi. That does it for the exchange today. Next on Power Lunch, Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta will join us. We're going to talk everything from online gaming to lockdown orders to IPO rumors. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.